Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME podcast. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. Indiana University School of Medicine and CME Outfitters, LLC, gratefully acknowledge an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated in support of this CE activity. This activity is titled Bipolar Mania, Improving Recognition, Diagnostic Accuracy, and Evidence-Based Treatment. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. Roger S. McIntyre, Dr. Paul E. Keck, Jr., and Dr. Gary S. Sachs. Dr. McIntyre, our moderator for today's activity, is currently an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto and Head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network in Toronto, Ontario. Dr. McIntyre has disclosed that he receives grants and research support from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and the Stanley Medical Research Institute. He serves on the Speaker's Bureaus of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, H. Lundbeck AS, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves on the advisory boards of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly and Company, The France Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline, H. Lundbeck AS, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, Shire Pharmaceuticals, Solvay Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Keck is Craig and Francis Lindner Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience and Executive Vice Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He is also President and CEO of the Lindner Center of Hope, a state-of-the-science UC-affiliated comprehensive mental health center in Mason, Ohio. Dr. Keck has disclosed that he serves as a consultant to GlaxoSmithKline, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, and Shearing Plow Corporation. Dr. Sachs is the co-director of the Bipolar Clinic and Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also the founder of Concordant Raider Systems and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Sachs has disclosed that he receives grant support from GlaxoSmithKline, the National Institute of Mental Health, and Replogen Corporation. He serves as a consultant to, or on the advisory boards of, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Cephalon Incorporated, Concordant Raider Systems, Eli Lilly and Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen LP, Memory Pharmaceuticals, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Replogen Corporation, Santa Fe Aventis, Shearing Plow Corporation, Sepracor Incorporated, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Over the next hour, Dr. McIntyre, Dr. Keck, and Dr. Sachs will lead us through their presentation. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 398 or call 877-CMEPROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you may complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test, or you can complete the credit request form and evaluation form, which are included in the course material. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Welcome to Neuroscience CME TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences.
independently developed by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello, my name is Dr. Roger McIntyre. I'm head of the Mood Disorder Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network, and I'm the Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you to Neuroscience See Me Live and On Demand, the continuing education series devoted to the needs of the professional neuroscience community. Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for multidisciplinary clinical audiences. Today's broadcast of Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand is also being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencecme.com. I would encourage you to visit our site for more educational activities to help you and your colleagues in your practice. I would also like to remind all of you to stick around after our show for what we call Neuroscience See Me After the Show. This is a segment where you're invited to give us a call or email us with your most challenging cases or questions. It's a part I enjoy, and I know that our guest today has enjoyed this part in the past. We're going to really grill uh, Dr. Keck today. Our goal is to further translate the evidence that we're going to provide today into real-world scenarios, tools that you can use to improve the quality of lives of the patients that you see. We have received a lot of, a lot of positive feedback regarding this segment, <clears throat> and I encourage you to keep uh, sending us your questions and your comments. We certainly will get to them. And with that, let me now welcome you to today's program, which is entitled Bipolar Mania, Improving Recognition, Diagnostic Accuracy, and Evidence-Based Treatment. I am genuinely excited about today's program, and I hope that we will share with you some of the best practices and quality measures with an aim that all of you can enhance the quality of care of the patients you see with bipolar mania. Let me now quickly review our learning objectives. First, we want to integrate, if we could, structured interviews and assessments to improve the diagnostic accuracy of the patients that we see with bipolar mania. Second is to compare and contrast available agents for the management of acute bipolar mania. And finally, to utilize guideline recommendations to individualize a multimodal treatment plan for the long-term care of the patients that we see with bipolar mania. So we certainly have a lot of work to cover. I would like to begin the program formally by welcoming my friend and colleague, Dr. Paul Keck. Dr. Paul Keck is the Lindner Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and is the President and CEO of the Lindner Center of Hope. Welcome, Paul, to today's program. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be here. Dr. Gary Sachs was also supposed to be with us today, but as many of you are probably aware of the tragic events that have occurred in Boston yesterday which have prevented him from being with us uh, for today's program. On behalf of CME Outfitters, we send Dr. Sachs our very warm thoughts and wishes to him and his department. Paul, let's if we can uh, frame today's question. Uh, we're attempting to look at the use of uh, clinical metrics, evidence-based care, and personalizing treatment for our patients with bipolar disorder. We'd like to start off with a case. Maybe you can lead that discussion, and we can begin to frame some of these objectives before we really get rolling. Well, Roger, Maria is a case, uh, a, a real patient, not a contrived case that Gary provided <coughs> us. Um, Maria's um, history, uh, treatment, course of illness, I think is uh, perfect to help us go through today's objectives, looking at recognition, diagnostic accuracy, and evidence-based treatment. So Maria, as you can see in the graphic, is a 38-year-old <coughs> woman who reported the onset and first treatment of depression at age 14. We're going to come back to that uh, important point right in a little while, that the onset was at age 14. She had uh, 10 hospitalizations over the course of her life, um, including, unfortunately, five suicide attempts, and her first attempt at age 14, shortly after her mother remarried. Her family history was notable for um, her mother having a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, as well as a history of alcoholism in several of her grandparents. Uh, fortunately, Maria had no history of violence towards others. Uh, she does not have access to firearms and reported that she also does not have access to any stockpiled medications. Um, in further history, uh, she reported that after the birth of her first child and uh, for three years subsequent to that, uh, she had had a sustained recover recovery 
primarily with treatment with valproate at 2,500 milligrams per day. Another important clue about diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Paul, the, uh, the case for me uh, immediately begins the process of thinking about the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And we have a somewhat um, unusual situation in our field. We have claims that bipolar disorder is being overdiagnosed. We have uh, lines of research that indicate to us it's being underdiagnosed, and there's still an ongoing, an unfortunate trend of misdiagnosing patients with some other disorder, while in fact bipolar disorder is the right diagnosis. So, how do we really reconcile all of this? What, what's, what's actually happening? How can one condition be overdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, and misdiagnosed? Well, I, I think one of the, with the problems is the overlap of symptoms among some syndromes in psychiatry. Uh, another is that bipolar disorder is probably the psychiatric illness that's most commonly associated with co-occurring conditions. Um, the other problem is, is the um, diagnostic um, difficulty <coughs> when patients present with depressed mood. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to diagnose full-blown mania, sure. the subject of today's presentation. <coughs> It's a little bit more difficult when someone presents with mixed symptoms, right. especially if in that presentation someone's reporting depressed mood. And if you take depressed mood at face value and treat someone in a mixed state with an antidepressant, you suddenly are off on a misadventure that can make them worse. And the key thing is starting with the stem of depression, mm -hmm. then make depression the, the beginning point of an elaboration of a differential diagnosis. One of the uh, challenges that I guess I've had as a clinician is when a patient comes in my clinic, as you hinted at, depression is so often the uh, presentation, and the patient has hypomanic features, often subsyndromal hypomanic features. I often struggle diagnostically. Is this person suffering from agitated depression? Does this person have a subsyndromal sort of depressive mixed state, which would fall under the banner of bipolar disorder? And to add further confusion to what I'm trying to do, patients often have comorbid conditions, as you mentioned. And I've been so struck at how often I'm asked, does my patient have ADHD or bipolar? Do they have characterological disorder or bipolar? Is it substance abuse or bipolar? And they clearly are not diagnoses of exclusion. And, you know, it's, in some ways it's academic, but it's more than just academic, trying to understand where are the, the crossroads between bipolar disorder and co-occurring conditions. How do you, in your own mind, sort of conceptualize comorbidity in the bipolar population from the point of view of causative factors and what it means to you as a clinician? Yeah, uh, the, the graphic before us, Roger, I think tells us a lot. It, it can't be that this enormous constellation of syndromes are all different. It, this has got to be telling us something about some commonality, either in a shared pathophysiology, maybe not identical, but shared, um, it could be, for example, that there's a genetic predisposition to impulsivity, right. and that would explain ADHD's comorbidity with bipolar disorders, comorbidity with substance abuse and alcoholism. And um, maybe even obesity. It, right. right. Be, and some people are now thinking about uh, reward pathways, and I know you've done a lot of mm -hmm. uh, research and work in this area uh, that maybe one reward pathway um, leads people to binge eat and become obese, and another... Um, uh, same reward pathway, but different, uh, different target of that pathway may be alcohol or, or a substance. I think from a practical standpoint, this frequent uh, co-occurrence of other conditions is bi-directional diagnostically. What I mean by that is if you see somebody with any one of these co-occurring conditions, it, needs, it means you need to look for bipolar mm -hmm. disorder. Mm -hmm. And conversely, if someone has bipolar illness, we need to look for those co-occurring conditions because we, we need to try to treat all syndromes simultaneously as best we can. That's a nice point. Paul, the graphic that we currently are showing is enumerating several factors or strategies that would improve diagnosis in, in the patients that we see, and our participants can, can uh, have a look at those. Uh, for me, I, I think the issue of comorbidity has often uh, been one of, yes, it's an important part of this neurobiological, perhaps overlap with bipolar, but I think in many cases it's, it's obfuscated. It's kind of covered up bipolar disorder. We so often see people who are abusing drugs and alcohol who in fact have a uh, covert bipolar disorder that only later becomes manifest or detected. Uh, you've been involved in many initiatives to help us think about bipolar disorder from the point of view of detection and diagnosis. The STABLE project is one of those projects. I'd be interested to hear more about the aims and what are really the, really the, the objectives of the STABLE project. 
Yeah, the, the stable project was um, <clears throat> designed to try to develop some key questions that psychiatrists and primary care physicians who are at the front line of psychiatric diagnosis could reliably ask when patients presented with depression to look for bipolar disorder, mania specifically. And the STABLE project um, began with a field survey of five different geographical regions of psychiatrists and primary care physicians in the U.S. What we found <coughs> was that um, a frighteningly low percentage of clinicians actually ever document symptoms of depression. Wow. They make a diagnosis, but they don't document, document what those symptoms are. Right. An even lower percentage ever even asked about, at least documented, asking about manic symptoms. I think the key points from that study were that, one, we need to track symptoms. Um, just like target symptoms for heart disease, lung disease, we need to track the, the presenting symptoms of mania or depression or a mixed state and then track improvement in response right. to treatment and, and obviously try to uh, treat to full remission of symptoms. It's, I think, worth mentioning that several of the measures as part of the STABLE project were endorsed by the National Quality Forum. And, and, and I want to pick up on this, this theme of using devices to enable us to uh, detect bipolar in a more, I think, efficient and more accurate way. We, we know as clinical researchers that we often use tools in, in, you know, in, in the context of a clinical trial that is really not really user-friendly for a real-world busy clinical practice, such as the SCID. There are other tools that we can use that would augment what we do in clinical practice, one being the MINI, and we'll give the coordinates for this a bit later. The MINI is a semi-structured evaluation of an individual who has a psychiatric disorder, looking at multiple conditions across different axes. I have been uh, uh, often uh, asked the question, well, my patient is scoring uh, positive on some features of bipolar. Somebody may have used the, a screening tool like the mood disorder questionnaire, and they're looking like they're maybe a positive screen, and the question is, well, I'm still not sure if this person has bipolar disorder. I have found that, if anything, using the MIDI assures that my fidelity to the DSM is in place, and it gives me a consistent approach to diagnosing my patient. So, again, screening is not the same thing as diagnosing. We, as mental health care providers, should be diagnosing our patients, and using a tool like the MINI can often augment in that process and take us toward that aim. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, uh, Dr. Sachs could not be here today. He has articulated what he refers to as the bipolar index, which I think is uh, real-world friendly because the patients that we see in our clinics do not fit neatly into the category. Some do, but most don't. And many patients have uh, phenotypic variants of bipolar disorder, which is, I think, a fact, but also can be a slippery slope. We don't want to, in fact, erroneously diagnose someone with bipolar when, in fact, they don't have that diagnosis. And the bipolarity index is a uh, systematic way of looking at both cross-sectional and longitudinal features of the individual who has bipolar So, in the current graphic is depicting that. And for me, what I think stands out is, first of all, the historical background to this. We remember the famous paper by Robbins and Guse back in 1970. And for those who are perhaps a little less familiar, that was the paper that articulated what are the, uh, the validators of a mental illness. And what I think really struck us all from that paper is the need to take a longitudinal perspective of the patient. So yes, cross-sectional phenomenology, age and onset, episodes, frequency, family history, and so on. For you, Paul, when you're actually looking at an individual who has bipolar, and let's use Maria as the example, because I think this is, a, as you say, it's not a contrived case. How can we use the bipolar index to better, you know, if you, if you will, affirm or refute the diagnosis of bipolar disorder? Yeah, Roger, you make a number of good points. And, um, you know, we don't do much in psychiatry uh, except diagnose and treat. And, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because right. obviously that's the, the essential thing right. that we do as physicians. <clears throat> the comments about the use of structured interviews I think are right on target from, from two standpoints. One is in the real world of clinical practice where time is of the essence, we don't unfortunately have time to go through right. a skid. On the other hand, the, the importance of those structured interviews is the structure that they are a, a way of adhering to a systematic way of assessing for any psychiatric illness, but in this case for bipolar disorder. Um, what what uh, Gary's Bipolarity Index does is add to this categorical approach of 
domain of symptoms, category A, B, the menu approach, right, right. and add in, as you said, the, the kind of validating criteria for a diagnosis that Robbins and Guzet came up with. So when we look at Maria, family history is relevant, and this is what we would look at in clinical practice. Onset of illness is mm -hmm. important. The, we know that right. the earlier the onset right. of illness, of, of a depression, the greater the likelihood that person is going to go on to have bipolar disorder. So looking at uh, our graphic and turning back to Maria, she had um, actually the onset of a depressive episode at age 14. Her manic episode was at age 19. She was treated with lithium and amipramine. She right. overdosed on amipramine. Right. Um, so that should have been a clue too. Right. Right. Um, she had the highest period of uh, severity, greatest severity of any mood episode, actually just this year. Maybe it's because she remembers it so clearly. But she also remembered some other mood episodes uh, that sounded very, sim very similar to a manic episode. Right. And her description was, I, I was getting drunk uh, to slow down all that was going on. So there's also the self-medicating aspect of things. Um, we know that this most recent episode, which sounds like a manic episode, was so impairing that she couldn't work. Um, and then we get the history, as I alluded to earlier, that her first manic-like episode occurred at age 19 and that this is um, really probably the third of or more of those episodes. So now we're getting the longitudinal course, time course of onset, or age of onset, family history, and all of these factors now start to build a much more persuasive case that this person has bipolar disorder. And then lastly, we do get back to the cross-sectional DSM type right. of assessment, and the, the character of that episode recently speaks, as the graphic displays, right. of classic manic symptoms. So now we've got a pretty good case that Maria has mania, has bipolar disorder. Um, and then we, we get into treatment issues. Right. You know, one of the, 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 I mean, the key issues that I think comes out of this discussion about making the diagnosis in a timely fashion is what it implies for patient outcome. Maria was fortunate. She made a suicide attempt not long after her symptoms began. And we know from the suicide literature that in the bipolar population, indeed this population has a higher risk of suicide. We all know that. The risk remains, uh, no matter if you're in your 50s or 60s, to be elevated. It is suggested that the risk of suicide is increased earlier in the illness course. In other words, much of the suicide attempts and completions occur within 5 to 10 years of the symptoms beginning. So fortunately for her, she lived through that. Many patients don't. And so the need to make that diagnosis early is, uh, can never be you know, emphasized enough in terms of you know, trying to get the right treatment to prevent these untoward events. Let's say a few words about so-called individualized treatment. I hear this a lot, personalized medicine, individualized medicine. What does it mean and how does it apply to bipolar disorder? The way I'm looking at this myself, we have a lot of treatments that are available, both psychosocial treatments and pharmacological treatments, and more recently neuromodulatory treatments are on the development. We have uh, a flurry of guidelines, which we're going to touch on in a few moments. So we have evidence-based medicine. We have expert consensus and guidelines, which we'll touch on. We're talking about the use of metrics in clinical practice, and now we're talking about personalizing that. And for me as a clinician, what this is, is, okay, I have patients. I know they have bipolar disorder. Maria has bipolar disorder. Now I need to find out, does she have predominantly a manic course, predominantly depressive course? Is she rapid cycling? Does she have comorbid obesity? Is there comorbid migraine? Are there aspects related to her personal environment, the lack of supports, ongoing expressed emotion, negative environment? This is what we need to do as clinicians is try to tailor that to each individual. For yourself, Paul, um, you, know, you know, a patient like Maria, you know, she presents with many different treatments. And maybe what I would like to do at this point is have a look at her treatment and begin, if we can, to refine maybe a, sort of a model for how we're going to treat her. I think it's a very exemplary case. Well, one of the most valuable things that we can ask in getting a history is what was your past treatment? Uh, what did you respond to? What did you have side effects from? What did you respond to and have side effects from? Uh, what did you not respond to or what made you worse? Um, when we look at uh, the graphics associated with Maria's treatment, I think one of the key things that jumps out is, wow, did they do a thorough assessment of her prior treatment? They sure did. Um, Secondly, um, as we go through these graphics, we'll turn to really what is a series of three graphics here. 
We start to get some, again, clues. Now, her, her manic syndrome pretty much tips us off. So uh, it's, it's, the diagnosis is not that, that confusing. But even if we didn't know that, we can start to get some hints from prior treatment response. You can see just looking at these agents that have efficacy in, in different phases of bipolar disorder that we start to get an idea of some therapeutic effect, albeit with also some side effects. And in fact, what Gary's group does is do what I think we all do, at least intuitively, which is make an assessment of effectiveness. Effectiveness mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. efficacy factoring mm -hmm. in tolerability. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at this next graphic with antidepressants, again, we start to get a history that's consistent with bipolar disorder, a history of misadventures with antidepressant therapy, worsening of symptoms, right, right. irritability, um, or side effects without therapeutic benefit. We also see some question marks throughout these, and this is because a lot of people, it's human nature, it's the, the, the faultiness of human memory, just can't remember the doses of medicines right. they were on, can't right. remember the duration of trials. So we do the best we can to estimate uh, adequacy of prior treatment and then what happened with those treatments. One of the, uh, I think the, the key points that emanates from this slide is the number. Yeah. And, you know, patients will often have sequentially failed trials, often insufficient uh, dose and duration. But it, it raises for me an important conceptual issue, and that is the issue of monotherapy. And, and, and I think we can agree that treating bipolar disorder is uh, really multimodal, which includes medication, but not limited to medication. But just sticking with medications for now, there seems to have been, I'm not sure where the seed was sown, frankly, but there seems to be this um, belief system that many patients with bipolar disorder should be effectively managed with one single agent. That would not resonate with the literature, would not resonate with my experience. And it seems though most patients, at least in tertiary centers, in you know, health services uh, centers, would require more than one medication. What, what is your, your view on that? And why is there such a disconnect between what I'm hearing around monotherapy and yet clinical world, clinical reality, it's all about polytherapy? I think there, there are a couple factors associated with that, that idea or that myth. Um, one um, is that um, we would no more treat someone with diabetes with uh, a prescription for insulin, here, go measure your blood sugar and see in three months, uh, than we would do the same for someone with bipolar disorder. We would just give them a prescription for lithium, tell them to get a blood level and see us in three months. Um, illness education is critical. Right. Um, it's critical so that people can psychologically come to terms with it, understand the effects of, uh, or the, the needed effects of adherence, um, go over side effects to troubleshoot those, um, build in family support, um, dent the denial that often is a part of this illness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, overall improve outcome. The goal of, of treatment of bipolar disorder is remission. So if the goal is remission, often one drug alone or one drug plus psychoeducational right. approaches or psychotherapeutic approaches just isn't enough. Right. Um, and there's no shame in that. Um, right. We just don't have perfect drugs right. or perfect right. treatments right now. Well, you know, it speaks to the complexity of the illness, as you say, and the multidimensional targets that we have. Let, let's say we can't have a look at some of the medications that are available. This graphic that's currently being shown depicts the various agents that we have for bipolar disorder. Category A is a column of treatments that have evidence uh, evidence in the form of randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials that are replicated. Category E or F uh, really refers to agents that either have insufficient evidence in treating mania or they have been looked at in mania uh, in adequate scientific studies but have proven to not be effective. A good example would be topiramate. Four studies have looked at this agent in acute mania and it has not beaten placebo. These are, by the way, uh, uh, a designation that has been really borrowed from the World Federation of Bipolar Disorder Guidelines. And um, what I want to highlight here is really the growing list of agents we have for mania, the conventional mood stabilizers, atypical antipsychotics. We're going to talk a bit more about this in terms of some of the data. But the next graphic, I think, speaks to the, the algorithm, because what we're talking about is the selection and sequencing of treatment, individualizing it to the patient. So I select and sequence one of these agents based on factors my patient presents with, as you said, history, what they've had before, what's their track record, what's the family's response to various treatments. If, in fact, my patient is not sufficiently uh, responding, that is, they're not in symptomatic remission recovering, then what do I do next? 
I think that in the field of bipolar disorder, I think Paul, you'd agree with me, we have a fair a bit of consensus on some of those early steps in mania, and certainly would also apply to depression and maintenance. But as we go down the algorithm, we start to see variability, not only in the science, but also in opinion. Let's just stay with the first steps on mania. What are the agents we have? What's the evidence supporting them? Well, Roger, why is it important to even look at evidence base? I mean, it's a buzzword now that you see a lot, um, and I think it's, it's important to understand it. The evidence base is important to adhere to because that's where scientific proof of efficacy and good data about tolerability come from. Avoids the risk of anecdotal use and misadventures because of that. <clears throat> but the evidence base is primarily limited to efficacy and tolerability trials for uh, indications. What that means is that there's typically a group of people who are able to provide informed consent and who don't have much in the way of comorbidity. Therefore, their representativeness to the universe of people that we treat more broadly in clinical practice is limited. What we also are limited, therefore, in is effectiveness studies, right, studies right. that in real world compare two treatments, whatever right. they are, medicines, combinations of medicines and therapies. So our challenge as clinicians is to take the efficacy trials and distill that evidence down into recommendations for patients and, and help them weigh the, the pros and cons of, say, the top two or three options. As you said, and also taking into consideration the presence of comorbidity, the potential impact of side effects. What we see in the graphic here for FDA-approved treatments in the U.S. is that most of these agents have indications for mania. Well, why is that? Because mania is the, the defining mood episode of right. bipolar disorder, and so right. usually in drug development, Mania trials are the first things that are done. They're also comparatively easier to do because these trials are short-term, right. usually three or right. four weeks, and you know whether or not the drug in question is beneficial or not. Long-term maintenance studies are more costly, more <coughs> difficult to do, and similarly bipolar depression trials, unfortunately, have been ignored until recently and are also a little bit harder to do. Hopefully, what we'll see as we go from the FDA-approved treatment regimens to the next graphic where we see a little bit uh, a different presentation, and that's of uh, studies of positive randomized controlled trials, hopefully we'll start to see this table filled in a little bit more. I think this, this I call it, is a scorecard. Uh, this scorecard is really a, a way of keeping track of where the data are of these agents which have, in some cases, broad use or broad demonstrated mm -hmm. efficacy, at mm -hmm. least across different phases of bipolar disorder, and others where maybe they've been shown to be effective in one phase, but we don't either have enough data in another phase, or in fact we have negative data, mm -hmm. that they're mm -hmm. not beneficial mm -hmm. in one phase of the illness. Um, so if we were thinking about what the evidence base is, there's the FDA-approved on-label evidence base, and then there's a little bit more broader evidence base that includes some off-label use of medicines, but where at least there's justification uh, potentially by uh, randomized controlled trials. It's a nice summary, Paul, and there's a lot of literature to cover. I, I want to actually put this graphic up. This is a, a graphic that's really presenting to us the response rates in mania as a function of the various treatments against placebo. And we're reminded placebo works very well, which really means that uh, an environment that's con you know, structured and predictable and with supportive uh, interpersonal contacts can be very beneficial. I don't see any indication, based on this graphic, that there's any one particular antimanic agent that offers a greater response rate. I think it's worth highlighting that what these slides tell us, amongst other things, is how many people do I need to treat with an agent before I see a response? This is the so-called number needed to treat. And many of us would say that a single-digit number needed to treat is clinically very significant. And we know, for example, that if we look at this slide, that the number needed to treat is between, depending on the agent, between four and six. In other words, I need to treat four to six patients to get one extra responder over placebo. For those less familiar with that metric, that is a very, very powerful effect size in a, you know, in a treatment of medicine, particularly in this complex condition. We have efficacious agents, but I think clinicians are struggling with, okay, the treatment's efficacious, but how do I manage side effects? Side effects have been a major, major, major headwind, if you will, in terms of trying to get patients on the right agents. There are many medications that have different side effect profiles, and each one has its own unique profile, which is listed on this graphic. But there are sort of uh, common side effects, the major ones being central nervous system, uh, cognitive side effects, sedation, 
somnolence. In some cases, patients are very activated on medications, which is uh, disquieting to them. We have concerns around teratogenicity with some of these medications, and obviously in female patients of reproductive age. I think gravitationally, and just through uh, real-world use of these medications, the issue of metabolic disorders has been, I think, a major, major focus for us. Uh, patients complaining of changes in body composition, they're gaining weight, uh, their body mass index is going up, more fat mass, increased waist circumference, all of this is bad news. And if we look at metabolic parameters like glucose or lipid homeostasis, we're seeing abnormalities. This graphic here is depicting changes in triglyceride levels as a function of treatment. And uh, we are seeing this in both pediatric and adult studies, that we have differential liability for changes in body composition as well as changes in metabolic parameters. The reason why we have triglycerides here is because it's one of the earliest indicators of insulin insensitivity, which many of our patients will experience on medications or, for that matter, just by having the illness. Today, in fact, uh, this, uh, this week in JAMA, there's another article describing this untoward effect in children who are exposed to these medications. So what we're talking about is, yes, managing a complex neuropsychiatric disorder, but in some ways, there's a bit of a Copernican revolution of sorts, where the focus is not just on the psychiatric aspect, but focusing uh, around the, the medical aspects as well, a new focal point in, in how we think about our patients. So individualizing treatment, yes, efficacy is one part of it, but I don't want to harm my patient. And many of these medications can, can do harm in the point of side effects and tolerability concerns. This graphic that we currently have uh, presented is presenting the um, recommendations from the American Psychiatric, American Diabetes, Obesity, and Endocrine Associations. And there are a host of uh, recommendations that are available to us, uh, suggestions around what we should be monitoring and when we should be monitoring and how frequently. I don't think we need to get too caught up into which particular guideline that we, we embrace. This is a very useful one. I use it in my practice, the American Psychiatric, American Diabetes. I think the principle is use one of them, and I think that there needs to be this systematic monitoring. Now, I've been involved, Paul, as you, as you have as well in this area for a while, and, and, and I, I was beginning to think that this was taking root. People were doing this on a systematic basis. I, I remained alarmed that this, this long into the story that uh, over 80% of people are still not having their lipids checked or sugars checked on a, on a regular basis, and I, I'm, I'm not entirely clear why that's the case. I have my own hypothesis. But we are talking about something which is critical, not only from the somatic health perspective, but also, as you talked about earlier, those bidirectional relationships with bipolar disorder. We, we think that if you have metabolic disruption, you have a less favorable bipolar illness. So we need to manage both the psychiatric and the medical aspects. You know, Roger, I almost wonder if it's time to start thinking about um, rec not only recommended guidelines, but a, but a protocol for... Um, blood monitoring for people on atypicals, for example, or, or any other agent that has potential adverse metabolic side effects. We, for example, if you put somebody in lithium, you know that it would be beneath the standard of care if you never checked a lithium level, right, if right, you never monitored right. thyroid hormone levels, if you never checked a creatinine level. Similarly, I think for atypicals, I think we've got to start thinking, well, if I treat somebody with one of these agents, I not only have to check their weight periodically, uh, BMI being a very non-technologically mm -hmm. intensive thing to check, right. but perhaps checking uh, a lipid profile at three months, at six months, at one year. And I think this is almost like the, the discussion we had about diagnostic interviews. Mm -hmm. the, the reason that structure is important is it just gives us a systematic way of doing things. I think the reason guidelines are important here for monitoring various things is it gives us a background to um, systematically monitor safety issues. Right. That's a nice point. You know, and I, and I like the way you framed it in terms of the lithium example. Um, the other example for me would be in the area of cardiovascular disease. If someone walked into a coronary care unit with an MI and they, and they were treated and they left, no one in their right mind would not think about tracking some of these lipids and sugars and obviously lifestyle aspects. In, in our patient population, cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of premature mortality. And obviously, this is a, an important target. We've learned from mortality studies that individuals with bipolar disorder, if left untreated, will lose 20, 25, 30 years of life due to cardiovascular disease. And it is a single uh, mediator of the extensive morbidity uh, that's articulated around bipolar disorder. And so I think that it can never be stated strong enough the need to uh, be tracking this issue. The other part, which I think is uh, critical for us to be aware of, is 
perhaps even independent of medication, these patients uh, cluster uh, you know, a, a host of risk factors for developing metabolic problems. There's behaviors that they involve themselves in. Uh, there's certainly um, aspects around the physiology of bipolar disorder. We talk more about immune inflammatory activation in bipolar disorder, insulin resistance, cortisol, 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 cortisol elevation. Cortisol elevation. And there's no doubt about it. And uh, just recently, we've been looking at this issue of metabolic syndrome in bipolar disorder because I think well, up until about four or five years ago, there wasn't a single study even looked at metabolic syndrome in bipolar disorder. Now we have almost 20 from 12 different countries reporting a higher rate of metabolic syndrome in this population. Now, there are pieces of the puzzle that still are missing. Is it, is it entirely a function of medication? Probably not, but medications are playing a significant role in this. But I think when we're treating our patients, even the newly diagnosed bipolar patient, we need to be approaching that patient for what they are. They're someone who is clustering risk factors for cardiovascular disease. I think what we're, we're emphasizing is the aspect around dialogue, education, psychoeducation, uh, psychotherapy, uh, not just to the individual but to the family. What are your, your thoughts and your comments on that? Yeah, this is a, a, a perfect lead-in to, to discussing the value of psychoeducation, not only the value, the, the, the premium on providing it. Um, and I think, you know, to be charitable to the 80% um, of people who haven't been able to get lipids on, on their patients systematically, um, one, it's, it's often difficult for patients to, um, to access medical care because of limitations in finances, health insurance. It's often hard to link with primary care physicians. That just makes, makes it that much more important, though, for us as part of psychoeducation to not only mention the aspects of bipolar disorder that we need to address, but also mm -hmm. these other second, important secondary issues. So, so what is psychoeducation? Psychoeducation, um, I think in, in summary, is providing education in a supportive way to a patient and their family or mm -hmm. significant others about what bipolar disorder is, what the treatments are, the pros and cons of those treatments, the need to adhere to treatment, um, the risks of treatment discontinuation, blood monitoring, Ideally, working with a patient and their family to identify the harbingers of recurrent mood episodes. Most people have a signature, mm -hmm. uh, warning signs of mania, warning signs of depression, mm -hmm. um, so that people can get help quickly if they start to have difficulty. Um, there are numerous studies now, uh, not a treasure trove, but certainly a, a core body of studies that have shown that psychoeducation, where they're provided individually in a group setting, or in a family setting, all do two things. They improve adherence and they reduce relapse rates into both types of mood episodes. So psychoeducational approaches are critical um, and just as critical, I would argue, as providing the foundation of treatment with a the medication. There are a number of good books actually out there about psychoeducational approaches. Um, Mark, Mark Bauer and Linda McBride's mm -hmm. book is, is one very good yeah. one, but there are others. David, right. David Miklowitz has a nice one. I think, again, like the structured interview issue, it's not so much which psychoeducational approach you use, right. but please use one. One of them, sure. No, I think it's good. And I think that really is the takeaway point. Paul, we've, we've covered a lot of territory in, in a very short period of time, and what I'd like to do at this point now, if I can, is to reach out to our audience um, and ask you, for some of your input. We certainly have uh, discussed scales, we've discussed measurement tools, the need for evidence-based guidelines in personalizing the, the treatment for our patients. You can certainly uh, present your question to uh, Dr. Keck or myself by calling, faxing, or emailing us with your comments or questions. You can call us at 1-800-879-2166. You can certainly fax us your questions to 240-465-5524, or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Before we start taking some questions, I do want to make sure that our audience is aware of some of the resources that we've mentioned and that you can use in the management of your patients who have bipolar disorder. Here are the resources on the graphic regarding, regarding some of the measures and guidelines that we have discussed. We made reference to the World Federation guidelines. I'm going to uh, be somewhat patriotic and make a plug for our Canadian guidelines as well on the CANMAT, C-A-N-M-A-T webpage. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, um, and that can be available through Google. Uh, the stable performance measures, Paul, that you were involved in, they're listed on this graphic. Others uh, are the bipolarity index that we talked about with Maria. We made reference to the SCID, the Structured Clinical Interview for the DSM-IV. 
And as all, uh, also I mentioned the MINI, which I quite like in my clinical practice. This is the multi-international uh, psychiatric interview. For patient education resources, there is the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, as well as the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and as always, the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health. Please feel free, if you will, to visit our webpage at www.neuroscienceseme.com for links to these and other very useful resources. Paul, we've got quite a few questions that are coming in, and I would like to begin, if I can, by taking this question from Dr. Rao. We had talked about the issue of comorbidity, and Dr. Rao was wondering about the link between bipolar disorder and inflammatory disorders. Uh, Dr. Rao is raising the question that many of uh, the patients that are encountered in the clinic that Dr. Rao works in are presenting with pain, headaches, and presumably a variety of somatic-type painful difficulties. Is there a link? What is the link? What do we need to know about this, um, this very provocative new issue, if you will, of inflammatory disorders and bipolar disorder? Well, uh, Roger, I'm going to turn that question right back on you because you are a leader in this area in research. I think my short answer would be there is a link. I don't think we understand that link very well yet. Um, yeah. What is your work uh, and your review of the literature indicating about this? Well, one of the, the findings that we've had is just in our clinic is that, yes, people have a very high rate of so-called inflammatory conditions. Uh, there's larger data sets that have now been published looking at, for example, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, diabetes mellitus, uh, uh, looking at obviously migraine headache and headache type syndromes, uh, cardiovascular disease. Uh, these and other conditions share in common uh, disturbances and in inflammation. And this is a historical note. Uh, we remember that back in 1927, the Nobel Prize in Medicine first went to a psychiatrist for work in inflammation. It was the days of malaria fever. And that was actually a provocative concept which had uh, a provocative outcome. Uh, but the point was is that immunoinflammatory activation was implicated in the presentation of a psychiatric disorder. Many of us have been prescribing anti-inflammatory agents for many years to our patients without even knowing it. Lithium is an anti-inflammatory agent. Many of the anticonvulsants have an anti-inflammatory effect. We don't think about them in that way, of course. And I think what we're, we're beginning to wonder out loud to ourselves is whether or not, as you, you talked about this earlier, Paul, the neurobiological overlap between bipolar disorder and other comorbid conditions. If there are, in fact, overlaps, if there are overlaps in the neurobiology, then that would, in fact, provide the, the basis for hypothesizing that maybe directly modulating inflammatory systems could improve, yes, outcome for the inflammatory condition, but also maybe for bipolar disorder. Here's where this hypothesis could be presented. Exercise. We don't have a randomized controlled trial with exercise and bipolar disorder. I think we can agree exercise yeah. is gen generically good for you. Um, but, you know, I think in the short term, exercise is pro-inflammatory, but in the long, long term, it's anti-inflammatory. And perhaps, uh, along with psychoeducation, the behavioral component of exercise and adequate energy expenditure, yes, it could be favorable to your quality of life, and you generally feel some more vitality, but maybe it may offer something profound in terms of brain activation, brain structure, maybe even overall brain function. So these are, I think, exciting uh, research questions. Here's another question we have. This is from Dr. Lopez. In practice, what would you, uh, why would you choose lithium versus an atypical antipsychotic in someone presenting with manic features? Um, good question. Um, I think, you know, mania is a medical emergency, usually requiring hospitalization. Um, usually the premium is on rapid reduction of manic symptoms. Uh, not only to al alleviate human suffering, uh, but for safety reasons. Uh, people in the throes of a manic episode often have bad judgment, uh, are often psychotic, uh, may be prone to, to violent outbursts. Um, the, the main limitation of lithium vis-a-vis -vis atypical antipsychotics or even first-generation antipsychotics is rate of response. Um, I think that's really the only mm -hmm. difference. Um, actually, if you go back and look at the old lithium literature, and even some of the new comparative uh, studies where lithium was used as a, a sort of uh, assay-sensitive uh, comparator in some of the placebo-controlled trials, lithium works in psychotic mania. Um, there's, there's an old bromide mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. lithium is only anti-manic in the sense of alleviating mood symptoms but not psychosis. It works as an antipsychotic in psychotic mania, and conversely, atypical antipsychotic drugs not only are antipsychotic but also ameliorate mm. um, mood symptoms. So I think it's really a time course of onset issue. 
There are other factors, though, and, and we alluded to them, Roger, and, and those are you want to, I think, if you can, and especially if you've got a patient involved in a, is a system of care, meaning hospital and an outpatient, you want to set the stage for long-term treatment with your choice or recommendation of an antimanic drug. And so picking a drug that not only is, work, works quickly in treating mania, but is then potentially a cornerstone for long-term treatment is, is something worth weighing into the mix. That's a, that's a nice response. Thanks, Paul, for that. We have quite a few questions coming from our uh, participants today. We'll take a live telephone call. Hello? Yes, go ahead. It's Dr. Hartman in Palo Alto. Diagnostic question. Um, recognizing dysphoric mania, which I've missed one time in an adolescent. Um, could you talk about dysphoric mania? That's a great question. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a tough call. Um, and, and, and I think one of the reasons that's so difficult is the, um, is the non-specificity of things like irritability, for right. example, which right. can cut across any type of mood state. Uh, or if even depressed mood. Um, Mark Fry um, did a nice analysis of some of the Stanley Foundation uh, data. There's a similar analysis now from the STEP uh, BD database. And what was interesting about these new research studies is that they showed that even a few manic symptoms, racing thoughts, agitation, mm -hmm. uh, decreased need for sleep being three of the best predictors of, of a mixed state, um, even a few of those symptoms that technically wouldn't meet criteria for a full mixed episode, the patient otherwise presents with predominant depressive symptoms, um, those, the presence of those few man manic symptoms predicted switch mm -hmm. into mania mm -hmm. very, very reliably. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, the, the difficulty is what are some of the better, more specific symptoms that are associated with dysphoric or mixed mania, and I think I would view them as racing thoughts as compared to ruminations, uh, decreased need for sleep, and agitation. Mm, that's very helpful. I'm going to remind our audience, we have a lot of questions, Paul, that we do have see me after the show. We can continue some of this dialogue. But that question around dysphoria is so critical in uh, the paper that you were part of that described that I think has so much relevance to clinical practice because we often see people who have those subsyndromal hypomanic features and knowing now that that is a baseline predictor of maybe switching, I think is extremely important vis-a-vis -vis the issue of using antidepressants and bipolar disorder. We have another question uh, from uh, our audience. This is coming from Stephanie. Stephanie. Hi. I'm, Colin, can you please comment on the bipolar spectrum diagnostic scale and if time um, diagnosing bipolar disorder in children? Sure. Um, well, I'll talk a little bit about the bipolarity index, and, and unfortunately, uh, Gary's not here because Gary was one of the principals uh, behind this idea. Um, it's not really a spectrum um, scale. It's a, um, well, I guess it's a spe spectrum concept, but it's not meant to so much diagnose the spectrum of right, bipolar right. illness, NOS, right. BP2, and, and bipolar 1 disorder, but to um, consider other factors that are predictive of a diagnosis of bipolar disorder that aren't codified in the specific criteria for manic and depressive episodes. For example, uh, DSM doesn't typically include family history at all as a criteria for anything. It doesn't include age of onset. Mm -hmm. It doesn't include right. recurrent right. mood episodes right. by and large. So what, what Gary's bipolarity index is meant to do is take a, a broader medical view of this, just like we would any medical illness. You think about the difference between lung cancer and pneumonia, not just based on cough and sputum, right, but right. some other things like right. fever and course of illness and response to treatment, things like right. that. Maybe I'll pick up on the part around pediatric bipolar disorder. That's a complex issue with probably more of a three-hour answer to it. <laughs> but let me, in fact, just be very, very uh, succinct. I think what we've learned from some careful longitudinal studies is that pediatric bipolar is longitudinally stable. It is a stable condition insofar as that it does exist. It's a real condition. Um, what we've learned is, is that the presentation of bipolar disorder in the adolescent is, uh, overlaps with but often different than we see in adults. We see an overrepresentation, for example, of that dysphoric, that mixed state presentation. Longitudinally, we see an overrepresentation of rapid cycling or unstable bipolar disorder. 
And certainly what has been the clinical experience is an overrepresentation with comorbid conditions or co-occurring conditions such as the externalizing behavioral problems and in many cases drug misuse. What's important to highlight is that we now have treatments that have been tested and proven to be efficacious in adolescent bipolar disorder and people should familiarize themselves with those agents. It is inexorably true that the uh, earlier the age at onset, worse things are for the patient. Probably speaks not only to the um, diagnosis of bipolar being more virulent in that person, but also perhaps some family dynamics and probably family loading of mental illness that led to this presentation. Also a critical period in development. Absolutely, absolutely, in terms of their characterological structure and so on. So it is a real condition. I think that there has been some uh, pushback. We talked earlier, Paul, about overdiagnosis, underdiagnosis. We have seen in some studies a 30 to 40-fold rise in the diagnosis of bipolar disorder in children in the last 10, 15 years. That makes many of us concerned about perhaps using the diagnosis of bipolar inappropriately. I think that still is a concern. That overdiagnosis or, or inappropriate use of bipolar does not negate the fact that kids can have bipolar. And I think that needs to be talked about separately. We have some more questions uh, from our participants. Uh, one here, uh, Paul, is around blood testing, blood monitoring, more specifically uh, evaluating white blood cell testing. So Dr. Lopez is asking us, do we in fact need to monitor white blood cells in people taking lithium, and if so, how often do you evaluate that? Um, there is a natural transient uh, leukocytosis when you start lithium uh, for a lot of patients. Um, that is transient um, and typically requires no monitoring. And I'm not aware of any guidelines that indicate that we should monitor white count in people taking lithium, unless there's some other medical reason. Okay. Paul, we've only got about two minutes left, and I, I want to remind our audience that we have the after-the-show component. We'll continue the dialogue, discuss complex cases and some of these important questions. So against that background of just about a, now a minute and a half left in the program, <laughs> uh, Dr. Radu is asking us that many patients... Uh, Dr. Radu believes has bipolar disorder, but they don't fit the DSM-4 criteria. Should Dr. Radu be treating them as though they have bipolar disorder? What should Dr. Radu do? Well, I think it's a very important question and, and something I think we all face every day. Um, you know, patients don't read the DSM-4. Uh, biology doesn't read DSM-4. DSM-4 is based on our best guess from committees, from synthesizing data. Um, they're probably multiple genetic contributors to bipolar disorder, therefore multiple phenotypes mm -hmm. associated with this illness. Mm -hmm. I think the, the best we can do is to be humble about our diagnostic certainty. Um, I see patients who I think probably have bipolar disorder, but I'm not completely sure, and I tell them that. Right. And I tell them, we're going to, you know, I'd recommend treating you as if you do have bipolar disorder, but I'm not sure. Um, or if I'm pretty sure they don't. I say, I don't think you do, but here's a risk, but we're still going to treat you as if you have recurrent unipolar depression. I think the more you engage patients, tell them what, how certain things are. Somebody has a classic manic episode, like Maria, like our, our discussion today, diagnostic uncertainty right. is over. Right. It's, right. it's these other people that, that I think we just have to be uh, humble about and then follow longitudinally because we get much more information. Right. as we get to know people in their course of illness in response to treatment. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful sort of point to end on insofar as there's a, there's a balance between false positive and uh, false negative, true positive, true negative, that we as clinicians are always trying to find that, that sweet zone, if you will. Paul, as per usual in our program, we'd like to finish with a few clinical connections. And what I'd like to do, if I can, is flag a couple of points. And that is, is that I believe strongly, and I think this program has attempted to really bring this to light, that we should be using diagnostic aids in our practice. There should be a structured approach to diagnosing bipolar disorder, and there should be measurement-based care. Let's track patient symptoms across time. It does aid bringing that quantification of the practice, I think, sharpens our focus. The second part is, and I say this strongly, I think every depressed patient should be screened for bipolar disorder. That is just you know, point blank. They've got to be screened given the, uh, the misdiagnosis and indeed the underdiagnosis of bipolar. What are at, your final connections? And not just at, at first assessment. Good point. But in an ongoing fashion. Good point. Because yeah. um, the, the illness could get unmasked down the road for any variety of reasons. Um, well, we touched a little bit about psychoeducation. And uh, I think I wanted to emphasize that psychoeducation 
has been shown to Im improve adherence to treatment and either via that mechanism or via other psychological um, effects that have a biological impact on, on this illness, they also diminish uh, relapse rates in combination with pharmacotherapy. just want to emphasize psychoeducation is never a treatment provided alone. Right. That's an excellent finishing point, Paul. Thanks so much for joining me here today uh, for the program. To our audience, please stay tuned. We have a lot of questions that we're going to cover for our After the Show segment, which will begin very, very shortly. I'd also like to remind all of our audience to check our website at www.neurosciencecme.com for a complete listing of our broadcasts. From all of us at Neuroscience CME, live and on demand, I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre thanking you for joining us today, and I hope that you'll be able to incorporate some of the evidence that Dr. Keck and I have discussed today in your day-to-day -day practice to improve the quality of care that you provide for your patients.